Welcome to The Frontline, a podcast from ILGA Europe in Brussels. We work with and represent over 600 LGBTI organizations across Europe and Central Asia, and our podcast aims to bring you to the front lines of activism in the region. My name is Brian Finnegan, and in this episode, we're looking back on the year that was 2021. It was a year of further lockdowns, of new strains of the COVID virus and the uncertainty they have brought about, and the enormous reverberations of the events of 2020 on people's lives. At Ilke Europe, when the pandemic first kicked in in 2020, our motto was, the work goes on. And throughout 2021, our work most certainly continued apace. To talk about the work and the changing context in which we're doing it, I'm joined by Ilke Europe's Executive Director, Evelyn Parity. Hi Evelyn, um, thanks for joining today. Hi Brian, pleasure to be here. So as I said, uh, it's been a year when the reverberations of 2020 and the onslaught of the pandemic have been really felt. So let's talk first about COVID-19 in 2021 and how it's continued to affect LGBTI communities and what the response of the movement has been. Well, it's it's quite a question, I think, a question that many, most of us <laughs> as human beings continue to 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 deal with, right? What What is the impact of... COVID-19, of the pandemic, of the measures that the governments and authorities, wherever we live, have taken to respond to it. And there are certainly lots of things that we have encountered, whether it's all Europe's staff, but also mostly our, our members and activists that are very similar to what we hear, you know, in broader societies. It's the being separated from loved ones and, you know, coping with, with the fear and the uncertainty and the anxiety that comes with it and having to cope with new realities. But there are also certainly very specific elements to name for LGBTI activism, because in a, in a for nearly two years now, there's been a very different context in which we we work, uh, and I don't mean by that by that just the fact that you know, as most of the world, <laughs> we've gone working uh, remotely and digital. But for a for a movement and for communities for for whom visibility and the public space is so crucial, where it's who for whom it's been so important, to, you know, in terms of claiming their rights, making themselves known, making themselves understood. Um, the pandemic has meant that we've had to really reinvent ourselves and some of it has been good but some of it has been very difficult because it's contributed to people uh, having to fight for where they can get their voices heard Uh, it's meant very a lot more difficult conditions to engage with politicians in lots of countries and a lot more challenges to building new alliances with people that you don't know because it's very hard to do this just um, just online. Um, and it's also, I think, mostly been felt um, at the community level for people who haven't had the space to be with each other, uh, support each other and and particularly so for for the most marginalized amongst LGBTI people who have found themselves incredibly isolated. And and we've also seen that then on the flip side that so many of our members have been extraordinarily resourceful yet again uh, and creative yet again at finding ways to meet those needs. But that also comes at a cost because it's a lot to, to take on for any one particular person or any one particular group. So... I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ongoing work, and it's about continuing, you know, as you say, <laughs> to to keep on steady and the movement across across the region. But um, I just hope that there's going to be a bit of you know 
lightness in, in 2022 for, for activists across Europe, because I think people need a bit of a breather. Yeah, I think we all need a bit of a breather, but let's stay with 2021 for a bit. Through this year, there's been a real sense of a divide between the East and West, Eastern and Western parts of Europe with LGBTI rights being instrumentalized and rainbow flags being used, particularly at the European Championships in June and July. So what I want to ask you is, do you think there is really a divide? And if so, how is the divide reinforced and what and who does that divide serve? It is not a real divide, but it is a divide. There, There is a politically driven effort to create a divide. Uh, and I should say, actually, a political, politically div- driven efforts to create men- multiple divides. Um, I think the East-West divide is something that um, many, many member states, many European Union countries are helping fuel because it serves their own political agenda at national level. But as I said, I think there are many divides at the moment that are fueled for political purposes because it's it's always we we know huh? we've known in history <laughs> forever that creating an other, creating creating an enemy, uh, makes it a lot easier to to sell your own to sell your own agenda. So um, the East-West divide, I think, is something that falls well in the hands of some heads of states like you know Viktor Orban just to name him but many others but it's it's also the divides that are you know trying uh, attempted on women women's rights and lgbti rights uh it's the divides uh, multiple divides on religious groups you know the christians versus you know the the muslims in in europe and and so on and so forth and i think it does serve that purpose what worries me most is that we are not attentive enough to how this, you know, is very dangerous. So in in the case of the uh, football championship, I think too many actors, whether they're governments or institutions or even civil society, who are, you know, groups that want to protect human rights and democracy and equality, I think fell in the trap of, you know, fueling that divide, of feeding that divide, that that narrative of East-West, you know, or, or the good and the bad and the human rights and the non-human rights. And I don't think it serves anyone because it only serves the further polarization that we see in so many of our societies. So that is something we n- really need to be particularly attentive to um, at this moment in time. So we're talking about divides. And on the other side of that coin has been the reaction of the EU and in particular, the infringement response to Hungary's anti-LGBTI law and Poland's uh, growing number of LGBT-free zones. And as we saw last week, the Commission has written to Hungary saying that it's not satisfied with Hungary's initial response to the procedures. So what's your overview to what's happening on a European level? Yeah, I think we're in a moment of hope <laughs> for the European Union. And I feel quite grounded in saying that, having been around Brussels for <laughs> quite many years. Um, I think there is um, there is hope to be drawn from the fact that the European Union is finally taking a lot more concrete and bold actions based on its values. I think there's a fine line at the moment in terms of, you know, as I just said, you know, creating, not falling into a divide, us and them. And at the same time, I think we're in a moment where we have to assert and to act in accordance to the values that 
we all claim holds us together. Uh, and in that sense, the fact that you know we've had very strong commitments and very strong words by the president of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, this year, that there has been these are there have been these actions like infringements, um, which you know I think even a year ago the Ilga Europe team would have would have wondered if we were too ambitious <laughs> and a little bit too idealistic in, in continuing to ask for them. And then we see that not only there were infringements taken, but they were very serious and that the European Commission is taking this very seriously, is scrutinizing, is taking actions, is looking into all the possible ways in which it can make use of its own competences to make the point to to countries like Poland and Hungary that um, that they've crossed the line when it comes to, yes, certainly LGBTI human rights and equality, but just human rights and democracy in general. So I find I find hope that there's a there's we're, we're getting into that moment where uh, the institutions are recognizing the importance of holding strong on on what they value. And it's also particularly important, I think, for people in those countries, because the other aspect of me believing that there is not no such thing as a divide is that we know from what we from what we hear from members in countries again, like to name them Hungary and Poland, we know that there are lots and lots of people in those countries who are supportive, who are fighting, who are on the streets, who are finding ways to to be there to to defend what they believe in, which is like human rights and freedom and democracy. And so in that sense, we cannot speak of a divide <laughs> in Europe. And it then becomes doubly important that the European Union institutions act in support of all those voices in those countries. I hear what you're saying. And um, I don't want to take away from the hope you're expressing but from what we're seeing, Hungary and Poland are not actually an anomaly in Europe. There is growing developments in other countries, such as Bulgaria, where last month the LGBT centre in Sofia was stormed by a group that was led by a presidential candidate. So we're seeing these things, we're seeing hate arising in other countries. So what does that mean in terms of where the EU can continue to do its work? Well, the hope that I was talking about is, I think, comes from from the fact that I see that more political actors in Europe, whether it's people here in Brussels at the European Union Commission or people within a, a growing number of European countries, I think we have reached the point where people understand that human rights and equality are not to be taken for granted. So that's the hope, that's where I <laughs> get the hope. Because sadly, it comes from the fact that we're reaching a very dramatic point, actually, in many countries. I think the situation has become that bad, that that is what is prompting, finally, the reaction that we have been calling for for years now. So there is, I don't want to sound naive now, it's, it's like, I think, yes, there, I'm, I'm now hopeful because I think political actors are, are finally aware and awake <laughs> about what needs to happen, but it's it is extraordinarily sad that we're we're having to reach the point that we're in, which is where there is widespread impunity in many countries, whether it's within the European Union or outside the European Union, that the rise of LGBTI-phobic violence, physical violence, abuse online, has reached dramatic 
levels. Um, I don't think we've seen and heard and reported on LGBTI-phobic violence in the past year as we had, you know, in the past. It's it's really becoming quite dramatic. And I think it's, it is also, we, we see the rise of the organized opposition. Uh, we see how resourced and how much money there is uh, in, in all the groups that are being mobilized. Uh, and as you say, Brian, it's... Uh, one thing we've said here uh, in the team for a long time now, <laughs> uh, Poland and Hungary are only the tip of the iceberg. We know that this is happening in many other countries, both within the EU and outside the EU. So it is very real. And I find myself saying more and more to the, the officials that I get to see in my position at Ilga Europe. I get to see a lot more than I wish I did have to say. Times are hard times are really hard for LGBTI people in in the region and and it's not just in the countries that we hear in the in the media but this is why you have now to act uh, in your own powers you have to speak up you have to take action where you can take action you have to get together and create political power to counter the opposition now is the time really now is the time in the context of all this, every May at Ilga Europe, we publish the Rainbow Europe map, which is a benchmarking tool that measures uh, rights and equality for LGBTI people across the European region. And over the years that has been published, it's, there's been a growth, there's been considerable growth in terms of LGBTI rights. But this year, we found a complete standstill in developments. This seems like a pretty bad situation. So where can we find hope for the way forward in what we're finding in the Rainbow Europe map? I find the hope in the reaction <laughs> that the publication of our map prompted in the sense that our message back in May was it's a complete standstill and now is the time to reboot. And I think it's after years of, of saying to governments across Europe um, you're just too complacent. You th you think the work has been done and it's just, you know, going to progressively get better. And we said, you know, this is not the reality. I think they, they were hit with in their, <laughs> they were hit with the reality this year. And when I say I, I take a little bit of hope in the fact that I think that message was heard this year. Um, many governments have actually contacted the Europe team being either, you know, on the sense of uh, what can we do better? And some are actually a little bit, but but what do you mean? We haven't done our homework. <laughs> so I think we did manage to poke them in the right way. Um, and I think it, it it is also, as I said, I mean, it's always sad to, to observe how as human beings, we have to hit almost hit rock button before <laughs> we actually start, you know, moving up again. But politically, it feels like that's the moment we're in. It's just like, the situation has become so bad that finally more governments uh, who've said for years that they were supportive of LGBTI equality and, and, and they probably are in their you know hearts and minds, but they weren't doing the work. Um, and I think now they're getting they're, they're finally getting it that work has to be done both in their own countries and and beyond. So so that's the, that's our task. <laughs> that's our homework. 
at Elga Europe and you know as as the broad Elga Europe the Elga Europe staff team here in in Brussels but certainly in very very close like working hand in hand with all of our members across across the region but that's that's our job now to tap into that opportunity and to turn the tides around and very much connected to this overall picture is the rise in demonization of trans people and efforts to exclude trans people from the women's movement and from LGBTI movements. In March, at Ilga Europe, we published our statement on gender. Can you tell me about the statement and why you, we felt it was needed at this time? That was an important decision that we took in, in the Ilga Europe staff and board early on in the year. Uh, observing just how harsh the situation was becoming for for trans people and trans communities in Europe. So that was one side. And the other side was, I think, the deep uh, sadness at observing just how the beauty of the human rights language (laughs) and the beauty of feminism was being used and abused to divide groups, to divide communities and to pit women's rights against LGBTI rights. So that's where it came. It was a double double objective. It was it was the objective to say first and foremost to any trans non-binary person, we are here for you. We are explicitly saying just how strong our support is and we're also going to articulate our own inclusive vision of gender we're, we're going to say how we actually firmly think that all the work that we do here at ILGA Europe on LGBTI human rights and equality is, is actually deeply rooted in women's rights and feminism and a, a vision of gender that brings everyone together. And it felt very, very important to do that at a time where it's not just politically because there's you know this big move to divide and conquer the LGBTI movement and the women's rights movement but even as you said within the LGBTI movement we are starting to see tensions and divisions so that is important um, I guess politically for the movement but beyond that it was I think personally and I think it was felt by everyone and shared by everyone in Ilga Europe it was the importance of reaffirming trans people's lives because I think one one of the most one of the hardest thing I find in in this whole trans narrative is just how dehumanizing it is it is completely forgetting the lives of people denying the lives of people and I think that's what we are been trying to work as hard as we can in Ilga Europe in the past year to in our political strategy and our programs work to to see what we can do to counter that but so much more has to has to be done. And I think, sadly, it's going to be one of our top priorities moving into the next year to counter the anti-trans <laughs> rhetoric and movement. But I think as everything we do at <laughs> Europe, we're not going to focus on the on the negative spin. We're going to use this t- as a as a moment to continue to be reaffirming the dignity of people, reaffirming rights, reaffirming solidarity. Um, we're working very hard on a on a campaign, which we'll tell everyone more about uh, early in the new year. This is a moment, really, again, to be coming all together for what we all believe in. 
Of course, we have also seen the rise of the anti-gender movement and the use of anti-LGBTI sentiments in countries with authoritarian regimes to curb the rights of other groups. And coming to mind here is Turkey, where LGBTI people were instrumentalized as leverage for the country to withdraw from the Istanbul Convention. So Evelyn, can you give me your overview of this trend in the use of anti-LGBTI hatred by anti-democratic forces? Yeah, well, I think it is part of that thread that we we talked about a lot in connection to the European Union per se, but but I think this is the landscape in which a lot of the work is is going on and not just the work at Ilga Europe, but for for most LGBTI activists and organizations at the moment is the f- the fight has moved again to being one of fighting for core democratic rights, core freedoms, because because more and more governments, whether it's Turkey, whether it's uh, Russia, whether it's governments in the in the Caucasus region, it, it is extraordinarily, yeah, the authoritarian tendencies are are very strong again. And so what LGBTI activists are having to compose with is, you know, the the core core freedom to be able to be in the in the public space uh, without fear of detention arbitrary arrest trials I mean we've seen this and you know Turkey was uh, very much in the media in the past uh, little while including with the the trial of of those students at the Metu University who had been on trial for nearly two years because they had organized a, a pride event so that's where the fight is at uh, again in many countries because we the clamp down on you know core democrat <laughs> democratic <laughs> spaces is very very real and that shapes a lot of the kind of work that has to be done it's about enabling groups to come together to be safe to sustain repeated attacks uh, to sustain the pressure of operating in those those conditions and those types of environments, which are incredibly hard for you know on, on a on a human level. So I think the work is complex again, and and this is where again for <laughs> for as for most people in in the world, the need to reconvene and to come together is particularly strong. But it it, it has a different connotation for activists who haven't been able to actually at least get the comfort that they usually get by coming together, uh, assembling together, especially uh, across countries. I think in the in the past, where Europe, for instance, was able to organize our annual conference in person, these kinds of spaces have always been a source of uh, restoration, re-remobilization, a bit of enthusiasm and energy for people who are, you know, operating day in, day out and in situations that are quite, uh, quite complex and quite uh, challenging. Um, and I think it's one of the other aspects of the of the COVID pandemic is that people haven't had these spaces where they could actually just reboot a little bit. So, yeah, there's a lot of challenges, which is why I continue to try to <laughs> point to the silver lining, Brian. <laughs> Well, I suppose one silver lining is the case of the Metu Pride activists who were acquitted this year in Turkey. And it was good to see the courts there making their judgment independently of the state. And as we know, 
uh, litigation is a way forward for LGBTI rights or for clarification in terms of LGBT rights and equality in Europe. And it's being used more and more to, to try and advance the cause of LGBTI rights. ILGA Europe intervenes in many different cases. So let's talk a little bit about the cases that were core to the work we were doing in terms of litigation this year. Yeah, well, I think generally speaking, it's it is really an it is really a positive trend in in many ways, uh, in the sense that in the last few years, especially in in countries where politically it's harder to advance rights because there's not a political there's not support from a government to advance a a, a law recognizing uh, you know family rights or recognizing uh, protection against discrimination and so on and so forth. It's true that that has been a, a glimmer of hope in many countries where the courts have actually more and more often ruled in the right direction and that has also been true at the at the European Union level uh, and sorry Europe European level not just European Union so yes yeah, so there has been like tri- trials like the well the the court decisions like the trial in in Turkey we are eagerly awaiting for the baby Sarah case judgment as we're recording this podcast so you know which would be a very important uh, hopefully fingers crossed very important judgment in recognizing the rights of the, of the child and uh, a, a step forward in, in parenthood recognition as well so there is it is important to know that more and more courts whether it's regional or national courts are actually standing on the side of, of human rights This said two caveats, I think. It is quite telling that you have to go to courts (laughs) to litigate for your rights. So the fact that, you know, the courts have been ruling in the way that we want them and expect them to rule is a good thing. But it says a lot that we're having to litigate more and more from, you know, asserting basic rights like was the case in Turkey or for progressing the rights as you know hopefully <laughs> will be the case tomorrow with uh, the baby Sarah case and the other the other caveat is that court cases also as as positive as they are they do rely on governments to implement them and um, and that's another whole area on which we've been we've had to do a lot more work than we might have planned to do, <laughs> where we see where the the very good groundbreaking court uh, court decision on the Komen case at the European Union level, which already dates back a few years, is still to be implemented by by Romania, uh, which is not necessarily followed either by other EU member states who should have to follow through the the, the decision of the court. So it's. Um, it's good to see that we can use the courts more, but it also doesn't end there. It clearly doesn't end there. And it's it tells a lot about the situation we're in politically and socially in, in the region. And also it's a reminder that no one should uh, stop at the news item they see about <laughs> a good, uh, a good uh, judgment because it's not because the judgment is there that it's going to automatically translate into a change in reality for people. You mentioned earlier on the ILGA Europe Annual Conference, which is a time in the year, a vital time in the year for ILGA Europe to connect to our member organizations and for activists from across Europe and Central Asia to be able to come together in person and gain energy and learn and and grow and, and face 
into another year of, of the work that they have to do, often in very difficult circumstances. But unfortunately, because of COVID-19, we weren't able to meet in person for the last two years. And we replaced our annual conference with the gathering online, which, although online, is nevertheless a very rich and vibrant week for the movement to come together and discuss the issues that are pertinent and important to us at the moment. So can you talk to me a little bit about the themes? What emerged from the gathering online this year? Ah, there were lots of themes, <laughs> I think. Because as you say, Brian, it was it was a very it was a very rich and vibrant week, I think. Which was a comfort in the sense that after nearly two years of working online, we we all wonder to what to what extent the online fatigue has reached people and uh, despite the best uh, intentions are people going to connect or not is always a question so in that sense it was great to see people come together at the gathering and it was even greater to see the depth of the conversations I think there were many topics for me there was clearly as we had shaped the program you know we talked we talked a lot about structural inequalities uh, anti-racism poverty well, racism and poverty, I should say. Racism, poverty, and other forms of structural inequalities that affect the movement, um, the, the political context in which we operate, and and people coming with very, very practical, creative, uh, resourceful ways in which they're coping. And not only coping, but actually, you know, properly responding <laughs> and taking act of, of the context. But, but I think... The biggest message for me coming out of, of this week that week was really um, almost a going back to the essence of why people are active in the movement and why people are standing up for equality and human rights, not just LGBTI equality and human rights, but I, what I was hearing was really a broad message of the importance of creating a world where <laughs> that is fair and just and inclusive of everyone. And it felt, I think, the word solidarity that we hear so often that sometimes is feels like this buzzword that you throw around, it felt actually embodied during that week. I think people were meaning it. Uh, people were wanting and eager to talk about, you know, why is it so hard when we want it so badly? When we want solidarity so badly, why is it so hard? And And I think we did get to a place of talking about it uh, honestly openly calmly and of all of the elements that I've named hope <laughs> since the beginning of this conversation I think this is probably where I get the most hope that we we are collectively getting into that space of um, of really seeing each other as human beings and and wanting to be be there for each other truly so I think that that is where the rest of the work will continue. So a lot of great conversation and connections and a lot of learning as we go forward in a changing world that happened at the gathering. Ilgi Europe 2 has been going through a bit of an internal learning curve over the course of 2021. So Evelyn, tell us a little bit about it. Yes, it's been it's been exciting actually and very rewarding this year. I think like uh, may, probably like many organizations, you know, the we've made good use of the time that was being freed, if I may say it that way, <laughs> freed from from uh, from not having and not being able to travel as much as we normally do, and so that was an important gift of time that we tried to, to 
we decided to make to to put to good use and to dig into some of the internal pieces of learning that we had named for some time and were always finding it hard to <laughs> to make time for so we've done a lot of of uh, of learning and and getting better around anti-racism starting to discuss and that was exercises we did with the staff and the board to learn more about what anti-racism truly is what adopting a decolonial approach and practice and analysis of the world means getting more familiar and comfortable with these with language finding language that you know makes sense for everybody uh, looking at ourselves and what does that mean to have anti-racist practices as ILGA Europe. Clearly lots of work <laughs> to be done. We're only in the beginnings. And then we broadened that a lot more to reflecting back on, on how we've been approaching intersectionality in ILGA Europe. And so it's all work and, and reflections that we're bringing in in our work for next year. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, bringing into the to the wider membership and, and movement in, in practical, concrete ways. Well, clearly there's been a theme of hope running through this chat and through this episode of our podcast. So let's end on that note. Evelyn, what are your hopes for 2022 as we go forward in the work of ILGA Europe and as the movement goes forward? Well, my, my hope is that all the... <laughs> all the seeds of hope that I've named <laughs> in this past uh, what half hour or so that they that they grow that they become um, hopefully more than just you know rosebuds but <laughs> maybe small trees so my hope is is that as a movement we we grow in 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 sincere solidarity my hope is that institutions and governments in Europe uh, continue to find the courage uh, to do the right thing and to act. My hope is also that more and more of the allies that uh, that are coming around and the coalitions that we're seeing become stronger and stronger. And my hope is that, yeah, we turn the, the tides around. It's going to take work. I think for that, I think the, the big thing that I see as part of the work of Ilga Europe for 2022 is that we make sure that LGBTI activists and organizations have the means to do their work. And what I mean by the means is not just the money, which is important, but the human capacity. Though. So the, the resources, the time, the energy, their well-being that they need to be continuing to do the work. So that for me is a core priority for us, that we are there to make sure that people are able to do that work, which is, you know, continues to be hard, but that needs to be supported. Well, thanks for joining us on the front line today, Evelyn. It's been quite a year for ILGA Europe and for the LGBTI movement in Central Asia. And I know I speak for all of the ILGA Europe staff as we go forward into a new year when I say that we are as passionately dedicated to the work we do as we always have been. And we look forward to working with and on behalf of our 600 plus LGBTI activist organisations throughout 2022 and beyond. Thank you. You have been listening to The Frontline, ILGA Europe's LGBTI activism podcast. Please subscribe, like, comment or share wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time when we'll be travelling further on the front lines of LGBTI activism in Europe and Central Asia. Bye for now. 